Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. It's Julie Henricus, the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I am really thrilled to welcome Chantel Emay Osman to the podcast today. Chantel is the editor of Agora Books, an award-winning imprint focusing on socially and culturally unique crime fiction and horror from publisher Paulus Books. Since its founding in 2019, Agora titles have won three international Latino book medals, been nominated for Edgar Stone. Joker, Dagger, Anthony, Strand Critics, McCavity, and Lefty Awards, and been featured in NPR, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the New York Post, the Los Angeles Review of Books, the Chicago Tribune, and Entertainment Weekly. She was named a Publishers Weekly Rising Star honoree in 2020, and she's also a professor at the LIU Brooklyn Polk School of Communication, MFA in Writing and Publishing, an instructor at the Virginia G. Pepper Center for Creative Writing, Authors at Large, and Lit Reactor. The former editor-in-chief of RT Book Reviews magazine and a freelance editor for over 10 years and has been a judge for the Phoenix Film Festival, International Thriller Awards, and the National Association of Hispanic Publications Jose Marti Awards. Chantel is the author of the nonfiction series on writing The Quick and Dirty Guides to, has published numerous works of short fiction, and served as the editor of multiple anthologies, including the upcoming Jewish Noir, Volume 2 from PM Press. She hosts the World Words of Prey podcast through the Pipeline Artist Network. You can find her online and on Twitter at Suspense Siren. Say that fast three times. (laughs) Chantel, welcome to the podcast. I'm so grateful we're going to have this conversation. Thank you, Julia. I'm really excited to be here. I love all of the ones that you and Sisters in Crime are putting out. It's, It's a wonderful resource, but then the organization is just a wonderful resource in general. So, oh, you're very kind, and I'm I, I'm really happy to have this conversation with you because not only writing, but we can also talk about editing and some of the business of books, and you could give us some insights into that. Um, but before we go there, let's start as I always start. You know, when did your journey with writing and books and, you know, your, your sort of calling come into play? When did you know that you wanted to do this? Oh goodness. That that's a really hard question because one of the, one of the things I most frequently get asked by my students is like, how, how do I become an editor? What was your journey? And I basically, I I don't mean to be rude, but I laugh at them because if I tell them how I got into it, like this is a path that no one could possibly follow. Um, I'm sure like all of us that are in the industry of publishing, whether a reader, a reviewer, um, a writer, an editor, whatever, um, 
it all starts with the love of books, which I can yeah. credit directly to my mother. Um, and I just, I was a voracious reader as a child. I read everything and um, I would insist on being taken to the library constantly and check out piles of books that were, you know, taller than me. And my dad, I mean, we didn't have a particular lot of money, but he would always say, you know, any book she wants to buy, I'll buy for her. Um, oh. And I do admit that sometimes I will still charge a book on his credit card if it's a particularly lofty tone. <laughs> and if he asks me about it, I say, well, you said that. And he's like, there should have been a cutoff. And I said, well, then I shouldn't have gone to law school because there was, <laughs> the terms to this contract are clear. Um, so I just I just love reading. And, and I did have a convoluted path to get here. Um, I, I worked, um, like I said, I, I went to law school, so I worked as a lawyer and in politics mm -hmm. for a while. Um, I also worked um, in the movie industry as head of business affairs and development for several production companies. And wow. really, at the end of the day, and, and finally fell almost directly into this Um but every job that I had or everything that I was pursuing really at its core was about words. You know, mm -hmm. um, law and politics are, you know, using words to persuade, to, you know, write laws. Um, and of course, no film would be made without a script. Um, so, you know, and, and, and that was part of what kind of propelled me into officially becoming an editor was working on the development side, which I ended up liking so much more than working on the business affairs side, which is doing contracts and that sort of thing. Um, which was the same thing every day, but I really enjoyed reading screenplays and talking to debut screenwriters and, you know, seeing their words and polishing their words and um, encouraging things to get made, which was a very discouraging process, might I add. Um, so when I stopped that job, I, I kind of set up um, my shingle as a freelance editor mm -hmm. and, and was very lucky to, you know, make a bunch of wonderful connections. Um, I, I can credit my current job um, basically to three people at various steps of the way. One is David Morrell, who... I met at my very first writing conference. I didn't even know what a writing conference was. Um, and I'd done some, you know, a little bit of editing and that sort of thing. And I started talking to him about it. And um, he gave me the benefit of his expertise for, I don't know, at least a couple of hours. And still to this day, sends people my way and checks in and makes sure how I'm doing. Um, another one would be Michael A. Stackpole who is a science fiction and fantasy writer, um, also a New York Times bestselling author. And um, he was instrumental in me starting teaching um, at various places and um, mm -hmm. has always been encouraging. And lastly, Stephen Mac Jones, um, who I met again randomly. It was an event. Um, I think it was the Strand Awards. Um, and I honestly don't even know why I was invited to that um, that particular year. <laughs> I, um, I, I think it was actually probably just after I had stopped working at RT Book Reviews. Um, and we got sat at a table next to each other and he was asking me what I was doing and um, it was just before starting Agora and I was talking about my editing philosophy and 
I have never met anyone. He, he didn't know me from Adam and he was so encouraging. And he said, you know, I know that, you know, you're going to do great and I'm going to be watching your career. And I was just like, I think of his words and his positivity all the time. Um, and, and, you know, we continue to interact and, and he's just lovely. Oh, actually I did forget. I feel like I'm at the Oscars and thanking people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Tom Straw is another one. I don't know if you know him. Um, he also worked, um, many years ago. He's a brilliant writer and novelist as well, but, um, he worked on shows like night court. Um, mm -hmm. and the first time I met him again at a conference, conferences are great. Um, was, I don't know, probably a handful of years ago. I think it was just, Agora had just launched. So probably it would have been 2018 or 2019. Like either it was just about to, or just had. Um, and I found out he was at this conference and, um, you know, I worked in Hollywood. I worked in politics. I've, I've met some celebrities and generally I'm, I think I like to think anyway, pretty cool about this sort of thing while well, he was in the bar and off I raced over to him and I just basically blurted out. I'm like, I run this imprint and it probably wouldn't have happened if not for you in night court. And he was like, excuse me, <laughs> because, you know, if you go back and you watch that show, they dealt with so many issues, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, transphobia, sexuality, race, um, things that were not really talked about on television at that time. And, and I really think, um, you know, that he was instrumental in what I do. So, you know, I guess it's a combination of a love for words and standing on the back of, you know, well, or holding the hand of so many really wonderful people. So there's so many things that I want to talk to you about this to, to unpack some of this. Uh, but I, I'm going to start with this. So you worked in uh, developmental, you know, in scripts and mm -hmm. developmental. So in film, which is so different than publishing. I mean, it's story and, and there's so many similarities. What made you take the leap into publishing? Was it so that you, as an editor, you could play a bigger role? Like, tell me about that that change in your, your career trajectory? Cause I find that fascinating. Well, you know, books were always my first love. Like I told you, you know, I was at the library. Yeah. I wasn't, you know, I love movies. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I wasn't at the library checking out movies. Um, yeah. you know, and, and most of my fare when I was younger were actually like older, you know, black and white, particularly mystery, like, um, you know, all the old Basil Rathbone, Sherlock mm. Holmes movies, uh, anything like that. Um, and, and British comedies, weirdly. But uh, yeah, so books were always really my first love. And, and I've written a bit myself. And that's where I think my knowledge base mostly lay. And I did start um, doing, I, I still do edit um, screenplays as well. But I, I think one of the disservices um, that students or, or writers um, kind of do to themselves is keeping in one box or another, I really mm -hmm. feel, um, and this is actually why I love the MFA program that I'm teaching at because they, they embrace this kind of philosophy as well. I, I feel like all of these branches of writing, whether it's, you know, poetry or film, you know, screenplay or a book or nonfiction, you know, they're all informing each other and they just add tools to your tool belt. Like if I have a student mm -hmm. who's struggling with, um, dialogue, 
I tell them to, you know, read about writing screenplays and read screenplays um, because, you know, a, a, a good screenplay is, is heavily, heavily reliant on dialogue. Now, on the other hand, if you have a student who's, you know, not really doing well at descriptions and the prose part, you know, I, I tell them to look into poetry and, mm -hmm. you know, read it and write it. Um, and read how-to books, um, because all of these things are, you know, like I said, it's just, it's just tools in the writer's tool belt. So um, as much as, yes, the industries are different, I do think that the craft part is a lot more similar than a lot of people give it credit for. That's such an excellent point. And, and adding tools and learning from other fields and learning from other artists and, um, you know, adapting it or, 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 adding it uh, is such a gift and it's a gift for you as a teacher to be able to offer that to your students like the many ways of looking at things um, I'm sure they they really appreciate and they learn from but also the business wise um, you know understanding how all the different businesses work also serves you as a writer right oh I mean, absolutely um, and and I mean I love teaching writing probably the most but I never mind if somebody wants me to focus on, you know, the business side of things, um, which is what I did um, last semester at, at LIU, because there is very similarly to Hollywood, actually, this kind of golden gate, um, you know, you, it's magical and you don't know what's behind the curtain. Right. Um, and really, you know, especially with publishing, it's, it's really quite boring in the long run. But these are things that Writers really need to know. They need to think of writing, if they want to anyway, as a career in addition to a creative process. You know, you need to know, what is it, how the sausage is made, you know, yeah. in, in order to make the sausage yourself. Yes. Um, so I think it's, um, it, it really serves writers to figure out what's going on um, behind the scenes and how everything works so that then you won't be as disappointed and you'll be, you know, more successful knowing how to work within the system. Yeah. Yeah. Or know what your opportunities are. Exactly. I mean, it's, you, you can be an artist, but you know, it's also a business and, and, you know, so in these conversations, I, we talk a lot about writing, but also publishing because they're two completely different journeys. Oh, yes. um, and you can control the writing. You can't always control the publishing part. So um, that's, you know, that's what we focus on in this podcast, but I'm so grateful that we can have a conversation um, about both. With well, you because... I assume the podcast is about four hours then. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Let's talk then, uh, you know, because you are also a writer, so we could talk about that. But I also, you know, what about crime fiction? You mentioned loving the early movies, which are those noir movies. Just the lighting alone is is <laughs> worth you know looking at and, and focusing on. Um, but uh, you know, what about crime fiction? Sort of hooks you, or or why do you why do you enjoy that specific subgenre or genre? Well, you know, I I, I like so many genres. Um, the reason that we focus on that and also horror. Um, with the imprint are because there's just so much being done there. We started with crime fiction because both um, my publisher, Jason Pinter, and I found that there was such a lack of voices. Um, we felt like we were reading the same thing over and over. And one of the main 
tenets of crime fiction is that, you know, there is so it, it tends to shine a light on justice or injustice um, and right and wrong, whether it's legal or moral or um, and I think it explores a lot of deeper topics than people give it credit for, often in a very entertaining way. And there were so many voices and so many issues that were just not being dealt with in, you know, by major publishing houses. I know there were writers dealing with these issues, but they weren't, you know, getting their voices heard at the time, um, or at least very few were. So that's why we released, and plus, you know, Jason um, is a crime writer himself. Mm -hmm. That's what I love. So it just made, made sense all around. And um, we expanded last year to horror um, for really similar reasons, because it's, it's dealing with these same issues, whether they're societal, legal, moral, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but in more of a, not that crime fiction isn't creative. I'm, I'm coming up with poor words here, but in a, in a more analogous way, in a more, mm -hmm. you know, metaphorical way, that's the word I'm looking for. Um, in a metaphorical way, as opposed to a direct way, but I think the same issues are being explored and there's some really amazing upcoming voices in horror that I'm just loving. Um, and as an aside, as far as I go, um, I was actually having a conversation with Josh Stallings um, on our podcast a couple of weeks ago, because on Twitter, there was some, um, you know, how there's always the question of the day basically going yeah. around there. And somebody had asked like, um, you know, what was the first book you, you know, you read or something like this. And so I started thinking about it. And of course I read, you know, I read a bunch of things. I read Sherlock Holmes. I read Agatha Christie. I read Poe. I read, but I was trying to think of something that wasn't a classic, like a contemporary book from my childhood that I remember reading, um, that has stuck with me and I still remember. And the funny thing is when I made this mental list, the two books that I remembered, were clearly horror titles. I mean, mm. they were horror for younger people, um, but they were horror titles. And I thought, well, you know, I guess I'm coming by this horror part of the imprint, honestly, um, because I hadn't really thought that. I always thought, you know, oh, I only read mysteries or, you know, I read a lot of things, but that was really where I focused. And, and I was actually wrong when I did this deep dive into my own psyche that I'm sure is not interesting to anybody else but me. Um, but so that's that's kind of where that comes from. And do you think that horror is, um, I feel from a, as an outsider, uh, that in the last few years, it's sort of broadened or it's 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 much it's always been popular. But there's so many more people who are writing horror or who are uh, writing hybrids of a couple of different genres. Uh, I feel like there's sort of a. Um, a, it's a growth in that genre, but I could just not understand. No, I don't think that you're wrong at all, but I think it's one of those ebb and flow things. Um, yeah. you know, uh, growing up, I remember as a teenager, you know, horror was really big. Yeah. Um, and then it kind of just dropped off. I'm sure there were as many people writing it, um, and many people reading it, but it just didn't seem to have that noticeable popularity. Um, and so I do think that it's absolutely experiencing a renaissance. Um, I don't know that it ever really went away, but I think people are noticing. Um, yeah. And actually, I see the same thing happen with the Western. Because if you remember a few years ago, it was Berkeley and they shut down their entire Western line and nobody was 
you know, buying or reading Westerns or so they said. Um, and I'm seeing the same thing happen there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think that these things that were kind of, I don't want to say overlooked because I, I honestly, you know, I have this huge genre soapbox thing where, um, long story short, I really don't believe in them. Um, most of the classics that we consider literature were genre fiction when they were published. Um, so, so I have this and I absolutely love to my publishers, I think both delight and dismay. Um, I love finding things that don't fit in a box. Um, Mm -hmm. I I don't know that I've published a thing that I couldn't put on three different shelves. Um, but I think that these are all, all kind of genres that people, I don't want to say like poo-pooed. Oh, you read, you know, mysteries. Oh, you read horror. Oh, you read Westerns. You know, it's not fancy. Um, but I think people are coming to realize, like I said, you know, there's this, there's this deeper core to them. And, you know, if you do any deep dives into Westerns, you'll see how much they actually dealt with, um, sexuality at times when that was not an okay thing to deal with. Um, and, and there's clearly a lot of subtext, which was intended by the authors. I'm not just like reading it into there. Um, and, and so I think that that's kind of, you know, I, I think these genres are becoming more appreciated for what they actually are, as opposed to what they were perceived to be. I agree. I agree. I, you know, you and I could share the genre soapbox um, <laughs> in, in many ways. Uh, it's also from to me again could be perception, and you can help me uh, help me fix that. I feel like we're in a golden age of of publishing uh, in so many ways because there are imprints like Agora that are specifically they're lifting up voices that didn't get heard or didn't have opportunities, um, which only expands the entire publishing industry. You know, we've got, we're not taking away, we're adding to with all of these different um, publishers and imprints and, and, and ways and editors like you who are um, really saying, I want that book that is three different things. And I want that author who's telling a story from a point of view that doesn't get told enough, or I want, um, you know, this, this specific, um, uh, you know, mystery, uh, theme to be, to have an opportunity and those opportunities exist. Now, am I just being relentlessly optimistic or, or do you agree with that? <laughs> well, first of all, I have to say thank you for, you know, putting Agora, um, in that, you know, category. That's, that's awesome. Um, and I mean, it's, it's true to an extent. It's also true that I'm just fabulously, I mean, I feel like I'm living in the golden age of publishing simply because I am really lucky and get to publish amazing books that I love. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a little bit of both and I'm loving seeing what other publishers are doing. And, um, I, I completely agree. I think that there are a lot of voices out there that might not have been published, um, you know, even a handful of years ago, um, for ridiculous reasons. And we can get on another soapbox about why marketing is terrible. Um, and, and that's a lot of the reasons. Um, but, no, I, I absolutely love what people are doing right now. Um, and, and I'm just hoping that this continues um, and yeah. that we keep expanding and keep growing because I think we're, as, as far as that goes anyway, moving in, in the absolute right direction. 
I, I so agree. Um, so let, let's talk a little bit about your, your journey as a professional in the, in this field, because, um, you, you do write, you're working on anthologies, you teach, you've got, you know, but as an editor, I think that sometimes people don't, um, understand that that's a career to explore or that they're, you know, they may, they're a writer, but, but maybe their super skills are in editing, um, as well. Um, so can you talk to me about how you sort of came to that path? I mean, being a lawyer first isn't usually the trajectory I've it's heard. Not. So congratulations uh, <laughs> on that. <laughs> um, my parents may disagree with you on that one. but <laughs> I'm sure they would, but you must be much happier. Oh, so there honestly, you go. I mean, this is my dream job. I, I joke. I don't joke. Like I get to read new and different books basically every day. Um, I get to, you know, I consider... I consider myself almost a interpreter between what's in the writer's brain and what's absorbed by the reader. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that I get to help streamline somebody's vision in a way that it's, you know, clearer when it's read is just, is wonderful. Um, it's also super rewarding because there aren't a lot of jobs where, you know, at the end of the day, whatever, you know, leaves my desk, I am really helping somebody achieve their dream in one way or another, because I mean, writers are, I mean, that, that's a dream. That's a passion. Um, it's a calling. And so, you know, these are things that are very precious to somebody and that I get to work with them is just, you know, an honor on my part, but editing, of course it's, it's, um, it's definitely a profession, but, And this is something that I I talk about with my students frequently. Um, You know, you don't, you can get an MFA. um, And so you can have a degree in, you know, in writing, or you can, they also do, actually, it's wonderful. They have a translation and a um, a proofreading certificate programs as well, which I think are very helpful. Um, I think even if you don't plan on pursuing those, it's Mm -hmm. definitely, again, going back to that toolbox, you know, tools in your belt. Um, are helpful, but there's really nothing, you know, you don't need a degree to be a writer. You don't need a degree to be an editor. You don't need a degree to be an agent. Um, And so it's kind of, the onus is on the individual to educate themselves as fully as they possibly can. Um, You know, I think that writers should read as much as humanly possible. I think that editors and agents, this is something that I do see crop up quite a bit. I see people who are, you know, fresh out of college, who put up, you know, hang their shingle as an agent or, you know, an editor, and they could be brilliant. Don't get me wrong. But I do think that in these fields, you know, there's a level of expertise that's necessary and there's a level of experience that you want in an editor or an agent. Um, And so, you know, building up that process, I think that my, my number one um, advice piece of advice that I give to people who want to be an editor and say, how do I start on this path is actually I tell them, and I swear this is true. I'm not just saying it for this podcast. I tell them to join an organization like Sisters in Crime. And I say, you know, find your local authors, say, you know, get to know them, meet them, say, this is what I'm planning on doing. You know, would you mind if I looked at, you know, one of your, you know, pieces of writing, maybe, you know, edit it. 
I often tell them to do like, you know, the first taste is free. <laughs> like they're a drug dealer. Right. Um, <laughs> but, right. you know, do a little bit for free. And I said, you know, earn that reputation, get feedback, figure out how to do it better. I swear to you, um, Julie, that I learn something new about being an editor every day. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's part of also why I love it. Like I tend to be a trivia nerd. And so, you know, I will be like, you know, was a button invented in this state? You know, you know, that sort of, you know, I don't think that bird is indigenous to that part of the country. Let me look it up. Um, so I, I love learning these things, but I also learn things about honestly, even grammar and punctuation, you know, there's, there's, there's no dearth of rules and things you can learn in this profession. Um, right. and I don't think, and I hope hope. I mean, I want to be a really good editor, but I hope I never learn them all because part of the fun of the job is learning that next new thing that I can do better. Um, so being open to that, being open to feedback, you know, networking with people and seeing, you know, what you can do, get, um, uh, endorsements, testimonials from people that liked your work, um, go to conferences, meet more people. Um, this is, this is how you build, you know, an editing business, but the best, truly the best thing is just doing it as much as you can and getting that experience. Well, it's the, the whole field is an apprenticeship uh, field and we're all lifelong apprentices oh, yes. when we're, we take it on. I mean, that's, if you think you're done learning, then you're, you're, it's just that you're not curious enough to figure out what you can do better. Um, and I love that you say, I mean, adding to your tool belt through a program is very helpful and a great way to network and everything else, but it's not necessary to have the success in the field. No, no, yeah. it's not. And, and also I think I'm misquoting Maxwell Perkins here, but, but going back to what you said about being a lifelong apprentice, you know, you, your next book should always be your best book. Yes. Um, and I know that that's what I'm looking for, um, in the authors, not only that I, will acquire in the future from Agora, but also the authors that I sign on. Like, I, I hope that they're going to be with me for, you know, not just one book, but a handful of books. And then, you know, go on to like a meteoric six figure deal and, and rise brilliantly like a Phoenix. Um, but while they're with me, you know, I love seeing, and, and honestly, I, I probably shouldn't call anybody out, but I just got, um, the second book in a couple of weeks ago from my debut author, Jana Slore, who was our April title of last year at the end of the world turn left. And that book I thought was already brilliant. And I started reading this next book, which is another standalone. And I was blown away. Wow. Um, I just love seeing when an author, you know, just learns and grows from the process. And, and like I said about an editor and just having practice, I think the same thing goes for a writer. You know, mm -hmm. you do learn from an edit, you do learn from the process, you learn from doing it. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's your next book should always be the best book. Yeah. What do you wish that authors understood about the editing process? Because you're doing it for a, an imprint. I mean, you're doing it for Agora. Um, but, you know, if, for indie authors, hiring an editor is an option that that should be part of the way they position themselves because the voice of the editor is necessary as part of the process. I mean, there are different kinds of editors as well. And I'd love to hear, hear you well, talk about course. that. Well, of course. And I do, I actually wear both hats. I still do a handful of freelance edits. Um, and, and I think it is a valuable part of the process because truly it makes you a better writer. And 
I was at, well, I think it was virtual, but I was at a workshop or conference recently. Um, and a girl, it was a panel of agents and editors and a girl in the audience asked the question. She said, you know what? I finished my like debut novel. It sounded great by the way. Um, and she said, I'm really scared because I'd really like to be traditionally published, but I worry that the editor is going to change my voice. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a misconception that a lot yeah. of authors hold. That is not our job. Um, if somebody's doing that to you, you fight back, um, even yeah. if it's in a publishing house. What the editor is there to do is you've got to work that's a 10. We want to dial that to 11. We want to make sure that everything is hitting your audience, that you have thought about, you know, all of the things you could possibly think about to make your message as strong as it can possibly be. Um, and, and the best editors do that. You know, I'll read a book that's great. And this happens because <laughs> most of my friends are writers. So I will often read their, you know, first or second drafts, not just as a friend, not as an editor. Um, and then, you know, they'll let me know what their editor's feedback was, you know, from their publishing house. And what I love to hear is because I'll read a book and I'll think, you know what, that book is great. And then I'll get, you know, see what the feedback was. And it'll just be like, have you ever considered amping this up? Or, you know, did you look at it this way? And then the author will go, I never thought of that. And oh my God, mm -hmm. this is just going to take this book to the next level. And that's what an editor is supposed to do because we're writing as writers, we write in a vacuum, you know, and we only have ourselves looking at it or, you know, I don't know, our mother or a partner. Um, so they're just going to generally go, you know, oh, we love that. That's great. Um, but you need that editor to have, you know, clearly they're editing you because they like what you're doing. Um, but you need that independent eye on things mm -hmm. so that you can get better. Um, because there's no other way. I mean, you don't, you'll never read your book or probably won't read your book, you know, um, or see your book read in person. You know, you're not going to be sitting in front of a reader getting feedback. Oh, this scene could have been tighter. Oh, I don't know who this person is here because you didn't give me the right dialogue tag. I mean, it can be a, a, a macro or a micro note. Um, but you don't want to wait until you get to a reader have that feedback, which you probably won't get anyway. Um, right. So, you know, an editor is really there. Like I said, I, I consider myself like an interpreter a little bit and like, oh, we could say this in a way that would be a little bit clearer. Um, and so I, I highly recommend, um, I, I recommend editors at every step of the way. I, mm -hmm. I honestly don't see why, you know, if, if I were to be submitting my work today to agents, and potentially editors, I would clearly get an editor to look at it before I even did that, you know, first 50 page submission. Cause I want that to be as tight as it can be. I want that to put my best foot forward because you might not ever get that second chance. So I do think every step of the way an editor is just a learning experience. And I know from my own clients, because I've had the same people come back to me, you know, for a decade or more now. Um, and I can tell you that from that first book, to, you know, their 10th book, the editing is a lot less, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, they have learned from the process and gotten better on their own. And my lifting isn't as heavy as it was earlier in the process, because that's how you learn and grow. So I, I, I love what you're saying. And what I'm hearing you say is that, you know, you need as a writer to be open 
to an editor. And so it's, it's feedback. I mean, and it can be good. It could be bad. You know, it could be, uh, you know, I don't want to say bad. It can be, uh, you know, challenging, but, but it's all in the purpose of helping you write a better book. Right. And also, you know, you do have to, I always believe as a writer, you should audition people every step of the way. Like just don't take the first editor, whether it's freelance or to publishing house, you know, find out if you guys sync first, Mm -hmm. um, read other things that they've worked on in, in any case. Um, and, and also see the type of feedback that they give because some personality types don't work well with other personality types. And that comes forth, you know, with an editor, um, as well. And I think that, um, having, that rapport. And, you know, if you have a freelance editor or actually really, truly any editor, because I'm not going to push back unless it's like an error or something that I know somebody's going to throw the book, you know, across the room, if this stays in, um, I won't put my foot down for a lot of this. This is a lot of, Hey, you know, here's a thought run with it. And a lot of feedback you have to think about also, don't necessarily, and this is true, particularly if you have like a beta reader as opposed to an editor, but don't think about the fix. Think about what stopped them to begin with. Right. You know, figure out what that problem is. Um, I remember there's a story from forever and ever ago. Um, the director, Kevin Smith, he was supposed to um, direct a um, Superman movie. And he had, this is a passion project for him. He was a huge fan, is a huge fan of Superman. And, and he could not wait to have this job. And I think it was John Peters who was the producer on this. And, um, you know, he'd gone through, I don't know how many iterations of this screenplay, et cetera, et cetera. And like one day he has a meeting at John Peters house and he goes there and sits down and, um, John Peters is like, okay, so, you know, the scene where, you know, you're in this like ice cave, I think there need to be giant spiders and Kevin Smith, having gone through like a million iterations of this ridiculous, like these asks, and he was trying, he was doing his best to incorporate everything. And finally he just said, you know what, this isn't for me. And he walked out. Um, and the giant spiders ended up in wild, wild West, which was the next movie that John Peters produced. Um, but there's a point, the point in me telling this story, which isn't my own, and I'm sure is told terribly badly apologies to Kevin Smith, um, is that there are lines that, you know, it is your work and certain things are helpful. And if somebody's telling you a thing that will completely change the ethos of what you're doing, um, or you're against, don't do it because at the end of the day, it's your work, you're in charge. It's your world that's being, you know, given to other people. Uh, it's such great advice. What other, what other advice or, or, um, I'm not going to say mistakes, but what other things do writers, especially early on, um, when they're, you know, starting to explore their publishing journey, what what do people do that gets in their way of success? Well, honestly, I, I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is educating yourself. I, I do, fortunately, because I love it, deal with a lot of debut authors. And I think that 
a lot of the things that I get that I won't say are missteps, but are because somebody doesn't know the industry and would have been mm-hmm. very, it's pretty easy to educate yourself in a basic way. I'm not saying that you should know enough um, to be a publisher, but one of the things that I do before I sign anybody um, is I make sure that we have a phone call or a Zoom meeting um, if we can't meet in person before you know we do anything official for two reasons. Um, one, I want to share my editorial vision. I want to say, you know, here is the major thing um, that I'd like to change, or here's something, here's an area I want to work on, and see if they're on board with those changes. Mm-hmm. Because again, like I said, if it's something that is completely, you know, um, antithetical to what they're trying to do, then clearly I don't want to do that. And I want to know in advance. I also like to tell them because, you know, I I like to say Agora and Polis, we're small, but we're mighty. Um, You know, we are definitely not a big five publisher. Your name is not going to be on a billboard in Times Square with us. Um, But there are things that we can do and we do very, very well. And I like to tell everybody what those things are so that, especially if it's your first book, that You know, there are certain things that, you know, that, you know, if I get a message, you know, why is my name not on a billboard? I saw five people, you know, who had books on this billboard. Um, Why am I not one of them? Like, I I don't I want to set expectations on both sides early on. And so I, I think that the thing that an author needs to do is know what questions to ask, whether it's of a publisher or an agent um, and and know what to expect at various steps along the way. And know that in advance. It's another great point. Of course, you're making uh, many of them, but I think that <laughs> that setting expectations for a writer and and what what's important to them, um, so that when they're talking to editors and agents and everybody else, they can see where they fit best because. You may think, oh, I definitely want to go with the big five or something, but perhaps for your book or for you, that's not the best fit. Maybe there's something else, you know, talking to somebody about their vision, their vision, and also their vision for your book, you may find a synergy somewhere else. And that's imp- that's an important thing is that synergy and that shared belief in the work itself. Well, Julie, that's, that's why I, one of my favorite classes to teach is about setting your career path, because I think you need to know, you know, you, you, you write a book and then you write the next book and you write the next book, um, which is great, but where do you see yourself? You know, if this is your debut novel, what are your goals for it? Where do you see yourself in five years? And part of that is educating yourself about the process. You know, am I going to be with the same agent? Um, you know, there are, there are career long agents, you know, which if you're lucky you get, and then there's sort of, you know, there's, I hate to say a starter agent, you know, where you're at a point in your career. And at some point you're going to want to jump up that ladder. Um, you know, what's best for you? Where do you see that path? And also, I think it was a brilliant point you just made. You know, I, I know so many people whose path to success has been publish a handful of books at a smaller press. Mm -hmm. You know, get a level of experience, get a level of, you know, name recognition within the community. And then I see them do that jump to a major publisher and major money. And they tend to be very successful. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that I'm not ever telling anyone to turn down. You know, if somebody comes up to you with a six figure deal on your debut novel, you know, I'm not saying turn it down, but also I think people don't realize the, for lack of better word, pitfalls that can yes. happen with that. You know, yeah. people, the number of writers debut, particularly who don't know what earning out means, yeah. um, you know, and, and it can be once you've done that leap, it can be your only bite of that big apple because you do look at the track record of the author. You do look at things. And, and honestly, it's another reason I know I'm just like pounding my drum here on how much I love my job. But one of the things that I really love that I get to do um, is find authors who have decided, you know, like I said, your next book is the best book. Well, I have had a couple, actually several that I've published where they have a level of renown in the community, but didn't quite do that jump and were staying in their lane until they weren't. And I got some of these books that were just like, blew me away. I went, oh my God, you really you know, you just did something completely different that I wouldn't have ever thought you could do. Um, and I can't wait to bring that to people. Like it was, you know, we've decided to try something different to grow, to change. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm lucky that, uh, my publisher lets me, you know, find these people and, and publish them. Well, and make that change because sometimes with, you know, the bigger, houses, they're going to want you to stay in your lane because that's been successful for them. And it's a business thing. Yeah. <clears throat> if you're a smaller house, you may have more flexibility, more willingness to say, you know what, let's, let's, let's re-navigate into a new road <laughs> because exactly. that can be, you know, there's a nimbleness to it um, that the bigger publishers don't have. I mean, just because of the, their size. Well, it's size, but it also goes to that, that terrible word marketing again. Um, they're concerned that readers won't follow them if they, you know, do something different or out of the box. Um, and I just, I love that. Um, so. No, it's great. So I really intrigued by this class you teach on, on planning a career, because I do think beginning careers, you just want, you're writing, you're just writing. You're like, Get me a pub, you know, get get a contract, stay published. I mean, you know, get published and stay published are the two two things. Yeah. But there is a point where you need to stop and do a reckoning of, okay, where am I? Is this where I want to be? Should I try something different and own it um, as a writer? Um, so do you suggest five-year visions or or how do you, you know, I know it's a whole course and you've got a few minutes. <laughs> oh, I but- can condense. Don't worry. And, and um, I think you need to be planning your career path once you write the end. Um, because, you know, having that list of here are the five agents I really want. And of course, that mm-hmm. list can expand to 50. Um, but, you know, here are the five publishers. You know, this is, I see my book published like X other book was. Figure out an author whose career path, you know, you like and see if you can emulate that. Um, and and I just know that there, there are so many, like I said, pitfalls where an author will just accept any agent, the first agent that says, I will yeah. sign your book. That might not be, that might be a great agent for you, but it also might not be. And so knowing your path and being like, okay, agent, um, here's where I see myself. I'd like to see this. Here are my top five publishers. Do you have connections there that will help me? Um, and I think, for example, like you said, you know, I'm, I'm going to change. 
um, some of my students in the last grad school course said, you know, I, I know I write, you know, my, my first novel, that's my MFA project is X genre, but I also like Y genre. And, um, is that going to be a problem? Because I think my next book would be that. So they already know kind of a little bit where they're going. And so Mm -hmm. knowing, okay, so book one was this, um, but my next book is going to be this. And is that going to be okay with that same agent? Is that going to be okay with those same publishers? Um, and, and figuring out that path early on makes a lot of sense. Um, and so I think you need to do that kind of in a, for your first book and then like your second book, you know, I, I, I say conservatively a five-year plan because honestly, depending on who you publish with book one might not be out for two to three years. So we're not talking that far down the road. Um, also, you know, another thing that I think writers don't think about is supplemental income, um, which in a sense we talked about a little bit because a lot of authors I know are also editors. Um, because, you know, that first book deal might not be huge. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you, everybody thinks, oh, well, you know, I did my MFA program. I did this. I'm going to get this major six-figure deal out of this and I'm done. Well, you know, if you want to be a career writer and you don't have another career, you're going to have to think about what supporting yourself on that journey looks like. So mm-hmm. is it I teach? Is it I edit? Is it I do, um, I talk to my students about doing tie-in work, um, you know, ghostwriting work. These things are all options that you also have to think about on that career path. Like, if I don't get that six-figure deal, how am I supporting myself? Right. Such, such great advice and such important conversations for any artist. But but it's just, uh, you know, that reality check with the hope and the joy and the, you know, expectations, but also how, you know, what do you need to make for a living and how are you going to exactly. do it? Um, is just, that's going to keep you on the path. And just because if you don't have realistic expectations, you're going to get burned out or not have the resources to keep going. Yeah. And you know, there is that, I, I think managing expectations, we can always hope for the best, but also plan. You know, the number mm-hmm. of people where I, I hear them say, well, I'm going to sell my book and then quit my day job. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, of course, again, there's always the people who get the amazing six-figure deals and that's great, but manage expectations. You know, you'll be honestly quite lucky if you get 20,000 for your first book and that's not quit your day job kind of money, especially if you right. have a family. Right. Um, so, you know, these are things that you really need to think about. You have to think about the practicalities. So Chantel, at the beginning of this, you talked a little bit about the importance of community. And so, you know, as we're winding up this great conversation that you and I could have had for another five <laughs> hours, um, g- let's go back to that because I think sometimes, uh, writers think that this is going to be a solo effort for their whole journey or that they should wait to join an organization like Sisters in Crime till they have their first contract or wait to, you know, go to a conference until they've got, you know, a book to sell. And, and I, I always advocate that people don't wait. They, as soon as they have an inkling, they jump in because you're meeting people, which is good for your profession, but it's also just good for your soul to know other people who care. Tell me about that. And for editors, you know, you know, what, what role community plays? Well, I mean, like you said, going back to the beginning of the podcast, I listed all of those people who 
basically without whom I would not have my career. Um, and, and that was all through community. I think I found out about that first writing conference through Sisters in Crime. Um, mm-hmm. I had joined my local chapter um, and that's where I met David Morell and fast forward from there. Um, I can tell you as sure as I sit here that Agora would not exist without my very good friend, Kelly Garrett, um, mm-hmm. who I would not have known if I hadn't, I been at a conference with her forever ago. Um, and also of course, Sisters in Crime. Um, and, and she was very instrumental in that starting Um, and I probably would have never crossed her path. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's things on a small level and things on a global scale that make a difference. And like I said, I can go back into this one meeting that truly changed my life, various points. Um, honestly, even, um, uh, Jason Pinter, my publisher, he and I met at, um, I think it was a BoucherCon, um, forever ago, over a decade ago. Um, and that's how he knew me and eventually crazy man trusted my instincts to do <laughs> this, um, imprint, but that would not have happened without community. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and particularly now, you know, I, I hate to say, cause I always, I get questions from authors, like how important is social media? Um, do I need to have it? No, you need to be writing good books. But that being said, during a time of a pandemic, where we've had Mm -hmm. multiple quarantines, lockdowns, et cetera, where there are no events to be held. You're not going down to your local bookstore and randomly picking up a book or wandering in while somebody else is talking. The only way people are finding out about books and authors, particularly new authors, is through word of mouth through people you're already following. So if you don't have that community and if you as an author, like you also have to put back in as well, you know, you have to lift the other voices in that community. Um, And that's, that's how it happens, particularly nowadays, you know, it's, it's the only way. And you go, Oh, you know, I've loved her other recommendations. I'm Mm going to take this one because there's no, like I said, we're not browsing bookstores. Um, So unless we hear about something specifically, so that community is more important now than ever. Absolutely. So do you have any projects that you're working on or any books coming out um, that you want to let us know about as we're closing? Oh, goodness. I mean, <laughs> I, I, we just had um, from Agora, The Red Canoe by Wayne Johnson come out, which is an amazing thriller um, about two indigenous people um, who are in terrible circumstances. Oh, and it's another one where I just got the next book and oh my goodness, it's even better than this one. And I can't believe it. Um, and then in April we've got, um, Senna DeSaigo Paul's first, it's her debut novel. She's an international journalist. Um, and it's called the 86th village. And it's actually based on a village that she grew up in 18 generations of her family. In fact, grew up in, in India. Um, and it was part of the, um, dam partition project and um, ended up being flooded. And so this Mm. this village is about to flood and um, a strange young orphan girl wanders into town and the secrets that she brings with her could be worse than uh, the flooding that's about to come. Wow. Wow. (laughs) That sounds great. (laughs) So now we've got a great slate. I'm very excited. That's awesome. 
That's great. Well, thank you for a really fabulous conversation. I, I know that you gave people a lot to think about. Oh my goodness. Thank you, me. Julie. This has been an absolute pleasure. And as you can tell, I could have gone on for five more hours if you would let yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll continue conversations in other places because I think a lot of this is important to, to talk about, especially career planning. I think that might be worth its own conversation right there. Absolutely. Um, but thank you so much. Oh, thank you. And again, thank you for doing this because it, it does, you know, not just with me, but the other, you know, guests that you have, it's, it's such wonderful information that you're giving. And I mean, it's its own testimonial for why you need a community and the things that, you know, that this is offered um, for us and out there is wonderful. So thank you. Oh, it, it, doing this podcast is my pleasure. I get to talk to so many fascinating people, yourself included. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.